Well, good morning, church. It's been wonderful to worship God with you this morning to be reminded of what's going on in our world. We have, obviously, some of you seen the images and the videos and you've been following the storm. And uh, in fact, we have in-laws and family that are in Houston. I know some of you do as well. This morning, I want to just begin with a prayer uh, on behalf of all those that are walking through this difficulty in the, on the, in the Gulf Shores and uh, that God would bring his, uh, his kingdom in the midst of this tragedy, that the church would stand up and um, if you're wondering about relief and how you might be involved, I think we may have more information later this week. But Trusted World is a, a group that we partner with. We've actually, one, one month we already had uh, all the proceeds in the coffee shop went to Trusted World. And they're partnering with Red Cross and other organizations. They're here local in Allen, and we know and have come to trust them as a, a place of service. And so uh, we'll have more information out to you. But Trusted World is a place we encourage you to look at if you were wanting to donate uh, and wanting to uh, spread uh, whatever it is that you can in the midst of this difficulty. But I want to pray this morning uh, for all those who are affected this, uh, by this storm, and let's pray right now as we, we open God's Word today. Yeah, we read about stories and floods in Scripture, and we know that it's a part of living in a world, God, that's been stained by sin. We, we know you're not the one who sets up tragedy in our path, but you have an incredible way of working in the midst of that difficulty. And so God, right now, I pray for all those right now who are, are trying to find high ground, God, that are away from their homes right now, are dealing with a loss of electricity, are dealing with tragedy right now. God, I pray you would sustain them, that your hand would be with them, that your spirit would encourage where it needs encouragement, that your church would be the church, God, in this season. So God, I, I, just, I just pray for each one that's affected, and I pray that you would be there in a special way with them right now. God, help us to know how we can engage and help in the days to come. And uh, we just pray for each one that's affected. God, this morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our lives today, that we might be your people, your city that's set on a hill this week. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, those of you who were last week heard about this series that we're starting, Life is Better Connected. It's a three-week conversation about the importance of groups and their place in our lives. In fact, we're, our encouragement is that every member of this church, everyone who considers themselves a part of this fellowship would make sure they're involved with three things, that you make sure you join a gathering, a worship gathering, you would join a group, one of our small groups, what we are now referring to as community groups, I'll tell you more about that, and that you join a team, that you'd be involved in service in some way. And uh, this morning, I want to talk more about that group concept. Uh, last week, we kind of shared with you that we're changing the name of our groups to community groups. There's kind of a twofold focus for why we use that language of community groups. Community is what we're trying to build as we're in these groups with other Christians. It's a sense of partnership and relationship. But it's also a chance for us to reach into our community and to develop relationships and to share the gospel with those who may not know it yet or haven't connected with a church body. And so that's the overarching kind of language we're going to use for our groups going forward. But we're going to continue to have the groups we've had for a long time, connecting point groups. We're shortening that name to just connect groups, a place where connection happens. And so we're, we're grateful that so many of you are part of those groups. Many of you have led those groups. Continue to do that work. All that we're asking over these next seven weeks, starting on September 10th, is, is that you'll be a part of 
the Simple Truth Conversation. We, we want to encourage you to do that. But we're launching another set of groups, which is are, are some short-term groups that are focused on the, the message and the sermons that we're going to try to make sure are relevant topics that we can engage with neighbors and friends and people in this church that we haven't yet gotten to know. And so we're going to start that on September 10th, and we're going to call these Simple Truth Groups. The reason for that is that's the sermon series I'm starting on September 10th is the, the Simple Truth. That name will change from different seasons uh, from year to year as the series is different than I'm going to be addressing, but we're going to talk about truth, and, and truth is such an important topic in our culture to look more at because there seems to be a loss of a trust in truth. There's a question of what's true and what's false, and how can I even know or try to determine that? And so we're going to have that conversation on some really important topics, and, and, and so I just wanted to share this. If you weren't here this week, there's more to come next week before we launch into these, but we want to make sure that every one of you are a part of a group in some way uh, in this coming season this fall. Uh, so the sermon series is called the same thing that we believe. This is a principle of our ministry. We believe that life is better connected. We believe that we were made for relationship and that spirituality is best grown in us within a context of relationships. But another principle that we want to share that you're going to hear is a phrase in our group ministry that we believe in is this. It's that circles are better than rows. Our family, family ministry has already uh, developed this as a, a center of their uh, way of forming faith in kids as well. Our kids are in large experiences of worship, but they're also in small groups as well. Uh, And we believe that that's important that we're not just in a passive place because that idea of rows is really a a concept that developed about 1,600 years ago. Before that, the early church didn't know anything of the experience of church we have. When we talk about going to church and we imagine going to a building and sitting in a row and listening to someone on a stage in, in a passive transfer of information, that, that's not what they would have thought of in the first century. Because in those days, it was a house church that gathered around tables, that gathered around a living room, and, and they developed the, the relationships that happened in circles. The question, where do you go to church, would have been an odd question in that time, because the people are the church. For the first three centuries, church was not associated with a building. The phrase going to church would have been unintelligible to those early Christians. Because the church was a people. It was a people who knew one another's names, knew one another's stories, and knew the dreams and the prayers that needed to be lifted up on each other's behalf. Uh, And this transition that happened in the early churches happened here at Greenville Oaks as well. There was a day where you knew everyone's name here. There was a day that I hear fondly talked about some years in the barn. Some of you remember the years in the barn, right? And those were special times. Those were days when, when, when the church was getting its start and and you knew everyone, you had a clear sense that, that something was being built from the ground up that you hoped would grow. Every church plant starts with these dreams and ideas. You want people to come until they come, right? <laughs> because when they come, all of a sudden there's awkward encounters that never happen in that small church experience. All of you have had that experience probably where you greet someone if you've been here for a little while and And you say, well, how long have you been here? Assuming that they're maybe new and you find out they've been here for a decade, right? Didn't happen in the barn days. But as the church grows, as we added a second service, as that's happened, there's a realization that things aren't like they were. And and that's the whole goal. That's why you start a church is so that it will grow and more people will come. But there's something lost along those lines as well, isn't there? A sense of not knowing everyone, not knowing stories in the same way. This is the experience the early church had as well. 
Because they started as small bodies of believers and house churches spread out across the Roman Empire. But everything changed in the 4th century when an emperor named Constantine legalized Christianity. No longer was it a persecuted group that had to worry about people infiltrating their system or finding out they were followers of Jesus. Now it was legal to be a Christian. And all of a sudden, persecution wasn't a fear. You don't build a building if you're a persecuted minority with a cross on top, right? Now, uh, but with this new idea, with this new identity, with this new realization, now you can build buildings. Now you can gather in larger assemblies. Now there's no persecution, but there are drawbacks with all this good news for these early Christians. Because after Constantine's announcement, there would be embarrassing conversations in the hall where you don't know each other's names sometimes. We don't know they've been there for a decade. Uh, Now rows will replace the circles that the early church knew so well. You you with me about this concept of rows and circles? Rows being what we do with education and schools most often, but even the best teachers today know that passive information transfer in just desks isn't going to work in the same way that's beneficial when you gather groups together, when you process in different ways in smaller groups. We try to do the same thing in some ways here as a church to realize that reality. So we sit here in rows on Sunday morning, and that was a new development that wasn't there early on. Now, the innovation wasn't wrong in itself. The innovation came as a result of a changing culture of acceptance of Christians. The innovation of of Rose was the result of the church's success, that it did the very thing Jesus had taught them to do, which was to make disciples, to go into all of these nations and to make disciples and baptize them. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. And I'm grateful to live in a time, I'm sure you are as well, when we can gather in Rose, when we can gather in buildings, when there's not fear, because there are places today throughout the world where you can't gather in Rose. It's in small churches, it's in circles where you have to do that, where no one knows about it. So I'm grateful to live in this time and in this place where that's possible. See, the innovation wasn't the problem. But if you only have rows and you abandon the circles of what was there originally, you lose something in the process. And there are millions of people around the world who don't have the experience of a circle when it comes to faith. In fact, I I believe part of the reason that people are leaving church is because they've become so accustomed to the rows and they've never gotten connected with a group of people who know who they are and know their names and they seem indispensable to the mission of the churches that they're involved in. I don't believe the early church could have imagined a time where circles wouldn't have been a part of every Christian's experience going forward. Here's a principle that's important for us to realize as a church as we seek to be a church that grows, that reaches our community. As a church becomes larger, it must grow smaller as well. As a church grows larger, it must grow smaller as well. That sounds counterintuitive on first hearing, right? But the idea is as we continue to add more rows or more services or campuses, the things we dream God will do here, we also have to expand the numbers of circles and homes that open themselves up where people are known And their names are shared and their stories are shared. Because if you don't have that, you can't grow in the same way as relationship allows for. In the New Testament, there are 59 occasions where the phrase one another shows up next to a command. You hear these as the one another passages. There's some examples I want to share with you. There's 59 of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. But Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other. Uh, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage 
one another. Where does this, this submission to these commands, where does that happen? It cannot happen in rows looking at the back of each other's heads. The only place one another stuff's going to get worked out is in circles, in small groups of people who know one another and know what's going on. That's where that gets lived out. It, it happens in circles. We all need a circle. We all need to be a part of a group. Last week, I, I talked about how groups provide us a place of belonging. That's one of the principles that has been important for me. And I want to share three of those principles over these three weeks. The second principle I want to share with you this morning is this, that groups are a place where we give and receive care. So, yes, they provide belonging, but there's something that happens once we have the belonging, and it's that we provide care to one another. And both of these realities are crucial. Because care is a two-way street. A lot of us know what it is to give care. But if we don't receive care, if we're not receiving something in return, that reciprocal relationship, we're going to burn out because we're giving and we're giving and we're giving without receiving. On the other end, if all we're doing is receiving care and we're not giving care in return, then that's not going to be healthy either. Care is a two-way street and it needs to happen in your life. And so I would ask you that question, who is it that you're giving care to right now? Who are the people that you know their names, you know their stories, you're praying for them on a constant basis? Where are you giving care? And then the question to others would be, where are you receiving care? Because some of you are pouring yourselves out and you don't have a place to receive what's needed for for the growth that God wants to bring in your life. One of the most caring people in the New Testament that I come across is a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always caring about the people of God. In fact, he oversaw the deaths of several Christians early on. Stephen, and in the early on in the book of Acts, the first Christian martyr, and, and Saul, as he's known before his name changed to Paul, he, he's standing in approval over this stoning of Stephen that happens. So he wasn't always the most caring person, but as he aged, as some of us do, we throw maybe a little bit of softer edges to us. There's a time in Saul's life of transformation where uh, he begins to show care in amazing ways. He shows cares to community of care to communities of faith. He shows care in his mentoring relationship with young men like Timothy that become the next set of people that take the gospel to the world. So something happens that changes Saul from this killer of people, this persecutor of Christians, this defender of the faith, to someone who shows care. And I, I want to talk about that transition um, in his life. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. See, before Paul gave care to other people, he received care in some transformative ways. I think that's often how it works in our lives. And in Acts chapter 9, it tells the story of Saul going to Damascus. And he's on his way to persecute Christians. Remember, he's he's a Jew. He doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's going to try to stop these heretics who believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he's on the way to Damascus. He's trying to do his undercover work and And there's this bright light experience that he comes across Jesus in this vision. And Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's blinded and he has to be led by hand into the city of Damascus. So in Acts chapter 9, this is a key moment in the trajectory of Christianity. The key question is this. How are these Christians who are there to receive Saul, how are they going to receive Saul when they find out he's in his greatest moment of weakness? This guy who's there to try to cause trouble, to stir up dissension, to maybe put them in jail or even oversee their deaths. Now he's in a moment of weakness. This would be the great time to take him out, right? How do you receive Saul when you come in and see that he's in a moment of weakness? Do you take advantage of him in his weakness? 
Well, God appears to a guy named Ananias in a vision. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to go to this guy's house, and you're going to find this guy named Saul. And I want, I want to read the encounter that happens, because this is one of the key moments in Christianity. What would you do if you were Ananias in this scene? This is Acts chapter 9, verse 13 and following. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. He's basically saying to God, okay, before you send me to the Saul guy, let me make sure I got the right Saul, because surely this is not the guy, right? Well, it continues on, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, what do you do in this situation? Now you've got the identity right. You know it's that Saul who's coming. But now you hear he's God's instrument. How in the world is this going to work? Well, watch what Ananias does. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord. Listen to that phrase, Brother Saul. The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See the kind of care that Ananias shows Saul in this scene? He sits in a circle with Saul. He calls him Brother Saul before he even hears a word out of his mouth. And his kindness and his care is a major step in the spiritual formation that goes on in Saul's life. Not everyone agrees with Ananias' decision of how to respond, just like today, right? We all disagree sometimes. Listen to the response of the rest of the community, verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Not everyone chose to offer care in this scene. But Ananias did. And then Barnabas, another key person in the early parts of Christianity, watch how he responds in the next scene, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, speaking of Saul, But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He he talked and debated uh, uh, with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is an incredible story. about The the way that Ananias and Barnabas receive Saul and speak up for him, call him Brother Saul, and others who want him killed, but in the end, he's protected by these people who trust and show care in a season where Saul needs it most. Pastoral care is important for Paul. It becomes the model for his ministry later on. Later on, Paul writes a book to the church at Philippi. It's called Philippians. And 
And as he's writing to this church, he's in prison in Rome. He's been imprisoned by Caesar and his associates. Just a few years later, he's going to be killed most likely by the Emperor Nero. And as he's in jail, as he's waiting, he's set up this church in Philippi. He's cared for them. He's shown them pastoral care. And in this moment, he receives a gift from the church at Philippi. And he receives it from a guy named Epaphroditus. Paul had set up this church. He'd shown care for these people. And then when he needs it most, he receives care from the same church that he had set up and shown care to. I want to read this about how he describes this scene. This is in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 25. These are Paul's words to the church at Philippi after receiving that gift they'd sent, after receiving Epaphroditus. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only Uh, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. And we don't know what happened to Epaphroditus exactly. But we do hear that he came almost to the point of death. He almost dies, trying to offer care to the same guy who'd offer care to this church when he launches it. And Saul receives the gift that they give. We're not sure what it is, if it's finances, if it's more resources. We don't know exactly what it is, but the church at Philippi sends Epaphroditus. He risks his life to get there. And Saul writes back and says, I'm sending him back. He's going to be well. God's going to take care of him. But thank you. Thank you so much for the care that you showed. This is what Christian community is all about. It's a service to one another, right? It's to receive care in the moments we need it most, but it's also to give care in the moments that others need it most. Paul founded a Christian community by showing care to a group of people who are on the outside of that society. When Paul needed it most, he receives it back tenfold. Somebody's willing to risk his life for him. That happened in the first century, but I'm here to tell you it still happens today. And this is just one story we want to share with you from the Mannings about how it happened this last year in one of our groups. This is why circles are better than rows. A little over one year ago on July 30th um, was a day that changed our lives. Um, I was involved in a uh, severe motorcycle accident. I was care flighted to Parkland and had a number of serious injuries that uh, included a traumatic brain injury, um, a broken neck, a broken sternum, a broken shoulder, uh, two broken hands. When, when you get the call that your husband's been careful, I didn't Parkland, kind of knocks your breath away. And so for probably about an hour, I couldn't breathe. I was um, hyperventilating. Um, I couldn't say a proper prayer. All I could say was, God, please don't let him die. Please just don't let him die. The first words out of her mouth were, he has, and she started listing his injuries. And that's when I was able to breathe, because I knew he was alive. When I had left the family room, it was empty. It was just, Becca and I were the only two there. I came back, and it was full of people already. So I know that prayers um, had been offered, and God's ears were probably buzzing with a lot of prayers that day, and I thank you so much. I came out in the waiting room, and I found out that there had been so many people there that day 
um, it filled the room. Um, people were overflowing into the hallway of where the elevators were. Made a huge impact on my children, on our children. Um, made a huge impact on other families there in that waiting room. And made a huge impact on the staff there in the ICU waiting room to see the kind of support we had. The people were, that were there were um, you know, not only from our current small group, but either, you know, a, a number of small groups that we've been in over the years, or um, even people that we've been involved in through different um, ministries of the church, through building relationships in, in small groups and doing ministry work here in the church. It, um, you know, has built for us a, a family. We were given... Um this very special little circle of um, cards for when people came to visit at the hospital. It was called a circle of love, and um, it was a way for people to write little messages to Mike and to the family uh, when they came to visit at the hospitals. And um, then the cards that we've received ever since, and that we're still receiving, uh, we've added to that. And when, like Mike referred to earlier about the celebrate, uh, celebrating his life, you know, the Glad to be Alive party, um, we used it as a, gift, or a guest book and had people sign new cards, and we're going to add that to it as well. It's a very special gift to us, and it's going to be displayed in our home to remind us of the circle of friends and love and support that we had during this past year. So it, to me, it's, it's kind of, you know, cliche to say, you know, you really need to have a, a small group, you know, when you go through something like that. And that definitely um, is true. But really kind of what makes it even more special is all the work that was done up to there. You know, it's really being a part of that group um, is a part of your, your daily life. If you build those relationships beforehand, you've, you've got that groundwork, you've got that connection, then you're going to have those people show up. They're going to drop what they're doing when they hear something like this has happened, and they're going to be there. You don't know what life's going to throw at you. There's a lot of uh, mountains and valleys in, in your life, and um, having a, a small group family is wonderful to share. Um, you know, not only when something traumatic like this happens, hopefully something traumatic like this won't ever happen to you, but, um, you know, you might be a person that can help somebody that's going through uh, something uh, traumatic. Grateful to the Mannings for sharing that story. They were in our first service and some of their families here today as well. I know they're grateful to their small group. They're also grateful to this church, for the way that you all responded. You know, if the Mannings had only been here and they'd only been in rows, I'm not sure that they would have met the people that would have shown up. You, in some ways, we've got to show up in order for others to show up. But they'd been a part of a group. They'd been a part of this church in many different ways. And when it came time, they, were, they found the care that they needed most. You never know what kind of care you may need. But the same is true about what others need. You never know what others are going to need that you're going to be able to step up for in their moment of greatest need. If you're not there in those groups, they're not going to receive the care that they need most. I want to thank all those who are involved in our community groups ministry for the ways that you lead and serve, for the ways that you're a part of those groups and provide meals and you, you pray prayers each and every week on behalf of them. I know groups that fast on behalf of situations for other couples and other families as they're walking 
through difficulty. I'm amazed by what happens in these groups. This is the primary way that care happens in our church. So many of you already know the group that you're going to be a part of this fall. You've been a part of a group for a long time, or maybe last year you found a group and your plan is to stay forward with them, but some of you don't know. And here's where I want to challenge you if you weren't here next week, and if you were, or last week, if you weren't, were here last week, let me remind you again. We're going to continue to have the connect groups that we've had. That's the core of our, our community groups ministry. But going forward, we have a lot of group ideas about what we want to launch. We have plans for next year about some new things I haven't even shared yet. But for this fall, the idea is to launch a new set of group that, groups. They're sermon-focused groups. We're going to refer to them this season as Simple Truth Groups because of the series that I'm going to do. For seven weeks, the encouragement is for you to step into and be willing to perhaps host one of these groups. What that means is that basically you're willing to invite people to be a part of a conversation about the sermon topics that I'm going to be talking about. I'll, I'll tell you more about that series next week in greater detail. But we're going to talk about truth, which is such an important topic in our culture. I think it's something that a lot of people are wondering about. So we're going to look at that in light of Scripture, and we're going to ask some hard questions about ourselves. And it's going to be great to be in a circle to know people's names and faces as we struggle through some real realities in our world that need to be nailed down for us. So I want to invite you to do that. In fact, there's a card in the row in front of you. We, we had several last week that committed, uh, about a dozen people out of this service actually, that committed to, to, to starting groups. I want, I want you to know also that we have about, uh, or every single one of our staff members and every single one of their families, every single one of our elders and their families have committed to starting each one of them uh, one of these Simple Truth Conversations. So leadership is bought in on this. And what we want to ask you to do is commit to the same thing if you don't know what this next season is for you. Maybe there are people at work or people you've been praying for you want to share the gospel with. This would be an opportunity to invite them into that conversation. Maybe you're a part of a, a book club and you're wondering about what the next season of that club is going to look like. Well, this is a great way to engage a new topic in a different way. Maybe some of you have a neighborhood group that gets together but has never gone to the, the next step. And Maybe there's a few couples in there you're thinking, yeah, this would be a great next step with them. Maybe there are people at work that you've been in conversation with. I don't know what it might be. What we're trying to do is basically provide you resources, questions from each of the sermons I'm going to preach. And also a, a video that will basically create uh, a recap of the sermon for those who weren't there and those that are serving in our ministry right now in children's ministry in so many ways to, to catch them up on what the conversation was and to bridge into the questions that you'll be inviting people into. That's all it is. There's no upkeep. It's not a nine-month commitment. seven weeks. So I want you to take that card in front of you. I want you to consider that. Uh, maybe you found out more already at, uh, during our group link and know this is what you're going to want to do. If you have more questions, if you want to find out more, that's all that card does is it lets us know who you are, lets us get you more information, get in touch, and answer any questions you might have about how to go through with that. We need your email and name just so we can, we can send you the, the resources we're going to send you every single week as a part of that. Maybe you're part of a connect group right now, and you know that that's the group you want to continue to be a part of, but maybe just for seven weeks you're going to do this, and you go back to the group you're a part of. That's great. There's no long-term commitment. It's just seven weeks of conversation. We think it's important for many of us to commit to hosting. We hope you'll consider doing that. Today, if you want to find out more, you want to sign up and get maybe a call from uh, one of our staff members, Keith, or, or someone else, just fill out that card, hand it to someone who's at the door. There'll be people at the doors as you leave, and, uh, and we'll continue the conversation to see if that's the place God may be calling you in this season. Life is better connected. That's what we believe. Circles are better than rows. And it's great that we gather in rows. We never want to stop doing that. This is a great celebration that not everyone gets the benefit of having. But you can't do life without that circle. Christianity is not a solo sport. It is a team sport. We're in this together.
Let's pray as we close this morning. God, we, we ask uh, this morning that you would, you, you would prompt those of us who need to step up in a new way in this church, God. You need to step up in our community in a new way. We know that there are people that you're, you're calling to this in this season, and we just ask that they would be the people who would stand up and would just begin a conversation, God. Uh, God, we, uh, we, we, we thank you for the people who are in our lives. I thank you for the Mannings, God, and the way that you have been present in their lives. I pray for continued healing in the life of Mike. Pray for support for their entire family, God. I thank you for the ways they've received that and the ways they desire to give that back. And I pray that would be an example to us all of what it looks like to be people who give and receive care for one another. It's part of what it means to be Christians as a part of this family of faith. So God, I pray we would find that group. We'd start that group. Whatever it takes, God, for us to find spiritual connection, we would find it. This morning, God, I just pray you would, uh, you'd send us out with encouragement today with a reminder of who you are and who you call us to be. We thank you for the grace and the mercy and forgiveness that you give us on a constant basis. We could not stand without it. God, we pray that comfort on so many who are here today and especially on many who are experiencing flooding. We just pray for continued comfort and your presence to be with us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit and you, that you promise never to leave us or forsake us. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.